Lord, we praise you this morning. We trust you. We cast ourselves upon you because you are a solid rock. You are a God who does not change. You're a God who, in whom there is no shadow of turning. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning knowing that we, we are faithless. We are insecure. We have doubts. But Lord, you, you are steadfast. You are strong. You can hold us up. When our hearts are failing, when our strength is failing, when our minds are failing, God, you are the grace that we need. You are the life that we need. And so we ask, as we open up your word together this morning, that you would meet us here in this place, that you would speak to us in power, in the power of your spirit. And Lord, we want to respond in a way that is not just hearing words only, but we want to respond as if we are hearing the very word of God. And so soften our hearts this morning. Make us humble before you. And it's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Psalm 89. To Psalm 89. And this morning, we're just going to be reading verses 1 to 18. Psalm 89, verses 1 to 18. A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, Steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, Who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted for you are the glory of their strength by your favor our horn is exalted for our shield belongs to the lord our king to the holy one of israel this is the word of the lord to us today well i think it would be an understatement uh, to say that as americans we care about security Uh, We protect our assets with insurance, uh, like car insurance, 
uh, home insurance, health insurance, and life insurance, or has more aptly been called death insurance. Uh, we protect our, our properties at various levels, right? At, 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 at the least, we have a lock and key on the door, but then there's the alarm system and there's the, the elaborate camera system that some of us have at our homes. Uh, the whole online world has created a need to protect our identities and even to protect our money. Uh, we as Americans know that there are serious threats out there. Uh, we take those threats seriously and we, we take precaution to make sure that we are safe, that we are secure. Uh, we want asset security, financial security, and we want national security. Uh, back in September, just a few months ago, I spent a little bit of time just reflecting on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And from what I can remember, a lot of what we were feeling uh, 20 years ago was sadness, but the sadness was compounded by a legitimate fear. You know, there was just these questions, you know, how could this happen? How could our most trusted institutions fail? How could we find ourselves in a situation? And could that have just been the first of, of many, many attacks to come, right? Our sense of safety and stability was rocked like it had never been before. So what do we do in this world full of threatening dangers? Uh, what do we look to? What do we put our hope in when our future doesn't feel secure? Who do we trust? Do we trust our banks? Do we trust our insurance agent? Do we trust our doctor? Do we trust our stock market broker? Do we trust our military? Do we just you know, turn inward and trust ourselves? Well, I would put before you this morning that right here in, in 2021 that we need something deeper that protects us deeper and that protects us stronger. Something that could keep us safe all the way down into our souls and something that could keep us safe all the way out into eternity. And this Psalm 89 that we've, we've read just uh, the first 18 verses of this morning, Psalm 89 meets us in our desire for security. And what it doesn't offer is just one more uh, offer of false worldly security. Instead, Psalm 89 celebrates the strength and the sovereignty and the, the wonder of the Almighty God. And uh, we're going to spend two weeks in Psalm 89. That's why we're stopping at verse 18. We'll, we'll finish the rest of the psalm uh, next week. But the way that Psalm 89, the whole psalm, draws us in to find our security in God is through a concept that the Bible calls covenant. And maybe you've heard people talk about having a relationship with God before. And maybe you've even wondered, how do I know if I'm in a good standing relationship with God or I'm not in a good standing relationship with God? Well, well what the Bible teaches us about a relationship with God is that it must come through covenant. And so I, up front this morning, before we even begin to walk through this psalm, I just want to give you a definition of covenant. This is the, the definition that I want to impress upon you. And if you, if you are taking notes, you'll be able to fill in the blanks with this definition. The definition of covenant that we find in the Bible is that it is the formal relationship that God graciously creates with people to guarantee His promises towards them and to ignite trust in them. So let me break that definition down for you. It is a formal relationship. Uh, the best way to think about this is a legally binding marriage. So God comes into a, a relationship with people that is binding, that is legal, that has, uh, that has a, 
a legal connection to it. And it is graciously created. Uh, in other words, all of us, everybody in the, here in this room, we have a certain relationship to God because he created us. But when God enters into a covenant relationship with us, it elevates it from a natural relationship to something higher, to something better. And uh, the, the, the relationship that we need with God is a gracious one. See, I would assume that there's lots of people here uh, that the, the way we have approached life, the, what, the way we think about the world, is that all of us are, are born into this world in a good standing relationship with God. And our job is to just make sure that we do more good things than bad things. And as long as we do more good things than bad things, God will love us and we'll go to heaven. That is actually not what the Bible teaches us about God. See, the Bible teaches us that we can relate to God in one of two ways. We can either relate to God according to creation, or we can relate to God according to covenant. And if we relate to God according to creation, then what we deserve is death. No one is entitled to God's love. No one is entitled to heaven And so if we are going to have a right standing, a good standing relationship with God, we must enter into that relationship through covenant. So we've got this formally binding relationship. It's a gracious relationship. And the reason God enters into it is to guarantee his promises. Uh, Think about uh, when you go into a contract or or you make some sort of agreement and someone puts forward collateral. What is the point of that? The point is to make that promise more secure. It's to show, like, this person is really taking this seriously. And if they don't, there's, there's consequences. And so God enters into this relationship to guarantee his promises. And then from our side, finally, he enters into this relationship to create trust in us. That when someone else is willing to put a promise in writing, when someone else is willing to put collateral down on the promise they've made, it leads us to want to trust them. It leads us to want to put our faith in them. So today, as we talk about this covenant relationship with God, the whole, whole rest of the message is going to be about covenant. As we talk about this covenant relationship with God, we're talking about a formally binding relationship, sort of like a marriage, that is graciously created because none of us are entitled to it, that guarantees promises like putting down collateral, and, the, and, it, and it's given in order to uh, produce trust in us, to, to produce faith in us so that we would put our hope and trust in God. Covenant is about relationship. And the fact that God wants that with us should just blow us away. So, if this is what God has done, then how should that impact our lives? We have three things today from Psalm 89, 1 to 18. And the first is this, rejoice in the formation of the covenant. Rejoice in the formation of the covenant. Uh, this, this psalm, as we saw, opens up with this joyous declaration, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord, but then it immediately, in verses 3 and 4, tells us why we're celebrating. Why are we so excited? Why are we worshiping God this morning? And so let's read verses 3 and 4 again. It says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So in the Old Testament, your first part of your Bible, uh, God made covenants with Adam. He made covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses. And he made a covenant with David. And next week, we're going to spend like a lot of our time next Sunday 
looking at the specific details at this covenant with David. But for today, we just want to talk about the formation of a covenant in general so that we can understand what's at stake in a relationship with God through covenant. So let's just make a a few observations from verses 3 and 4. First, when God forms a covenant, we don't initiate it. We don't come up with the idea and we don't set the terms. God graciously initiates with us. That's why it says in verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. Um, maybe you know two people and they're friends, and you think to yourself, how did those two people become friends? Uh, or maybe this is a little bit more dangerous. Um, maybe you know a married couple and you think, how in the world did those two people end up together? Well, uh, one, one theologian that I read this week about covenant with God said this. He said, Never have such opposite parties been appeased. Never have such unequal parties been united. The parties are God, the creator of all things, and man, an abominable sinner. If we are in relationship with God, it is because God was willing to humble himself down to where we were and to meet us with his grace. A second observation is that when God forms a covenant, it is always from him, but it is for us. It is for us. God doesn't actually get anything from it. He isn't wrestling with his own faithfulness. God isn't wondering if he will keep his promises. God doesn't need accountability. And so the whole covenant enterprise is a, is a token of God's loving assurance. It's Him coming to us and assuring our weak hearts of His great love for us. Um, I've learned about myself that I tend to be forgetful. I'm sure there's some of y'all that are like me. You have to like set reminders on your phone just to do like basic tasks in your life. Uh, and then sometimes I set the reminder, it goes off, and I think, hey, I'll do that late. I'll do that in an hour. I'll get to, and then like two weeks goes by and I still haven't done what I'm supposed to do, right? God doesn't enter into covenant with us to set an alarm for himself. God perfectly knows that he is perfectly faithful. And so why does he enter into covenant? He enters into covenant for us so that we can be assured. We are the ones with trust issues. We are the ones who are insecure. And so God makes the relationship legally binding so that we can know Not just that God's faithful in a vague way, right? People love that God is faithful. But the covenant means that he isn't just faithful, but that he's faithful to me. That I can actually know that his faithfulness means that it will affect me in some way. And so, yes, the covenant is always from God. It's initiated by him. It's by his grace. But the covenant is given for us. And then a third observation about about the covenant here in verses 3 and 4. When God forms a covenant, it comes with unbreakable promises. That's why he says at the end of verse 3, I have sworn. What God promised to David was to establish his offspring forever and to give his family a kingdom that would last forever. 
Now, if you've done a little bit of Bible reading, maybe you've read through First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings, and, and you begin to read the story, if you know this promise, if you know that God had promised him to have generations forever and a kingdom that would last forever, you would begin to think, this is not going to work out. That the story starts to go really sour really fast. And you begin to think, how is this going to be possible? But then... God fulfilled David's promise in a way that David could have, could have never imagined. The way that God fulfilled this promise to David was by sending his own eternal son in the person of Jesus Christ. God established David's offspring forever because David's great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus was risen from the dead to never die again. And God fulfilled his promise to David to set up a kingdom that would last forever because his great-great-great-great-grandson Jesus is now seated on a throne not just over Israel, but Jesus is seated on the throne of heaven itself. And so when God fulfilled his promise to David, he did it in a way that even David could have never imagined how God would have fulfilled this promise. When God makes a covenant promise, there's nothing that can stop it. And when he fulfills his promise, it is greater and better and fuller than we could ever imagine. And that is where the Jews went wrong. See, what we learn is that when Jesus came on the scene, the Jews, they had their hope set on this promise. They were looking intently for the king. They were looking intently for the Messiah. But they had their hearts set too low. Their desires were on the things of this earth. They wanted a king who would give them earthly security. And God sent a king who would provide eternal security. They wanted a king who would set up a military power and create a nation on this earth. Instead, God sent a king who wanted to conquer sin and Satan and hell itself, which were far greater enemies than any of Israel's earthly enemies. And so here's a crazy thought. What if we were able to avoid making the same mistake that Israel made when God fulfilled the promise to David in sending his son, Jesus. See, it's great to look for the promises of God. I hope that you know the promises of God, that you love the promises of God. But to look for the promises of God has to be married, has to be wedded to a desire for God's agenda. Clinging to God's promises but also desiring our own agenda is a recipe for frustration and letdown. But if we honestly trust this covenant God, if we honestly put our hope in his hands, that means both his promises, all these wonderful things that he tells us he's going to do, and his agenda, his timeline, his desired outcomes, guys, God will blow all of our wildest dreams way further than we could ever imagine, just like he had done in, in David's son, Jesus Christ. 
And so with all this in mind now, looking at verse 3 and 4, it makes more sense why verses 1 and 2 start with this celebration. The, psalm, the psalmist declares, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. See, verse 2 is attempting to paint this visible picture. If God has really entered into covenant relationship with sinful man, then that must mean that his love just goes on forever and ever and ever. Uh, in my house, we, we like to build towers. Uh, sometimes it's Legos, sometimes it's blocks, sometimes just whatever we can get our hands on. And the, the image I have in my head is just like this, this Lego tower, you know, that just, just goes up and just never stops. It just goes up and up and up and up. And it's like we're being... We're being told to look up and try to look as high as you possibly can, and you could never see the top of God's love. You could never find the top of his faithfulness. And so here's a question I have for you, a way to maybe apply this to your heart this morning. What are you believing could outpace God's faithfulness? Or maybe another way to ask it would be, what are we believing could move us outside of God's love? If you met a guy and he told you that he used his power to steal another man's wife and then she got pregnant, but he didn't really want to deal with the consequences so he just had the guy killed. If you met that guy, you would think, this is a terrible person. Well, guys, that is David. That is the guy that God entered into covenant relationship with. And guess what? If David committing those heinous sins couldn't break God's promises to him, what do we think that we could possibly do that would keep God from keeping, could keep God from keeping his promises to us? Could we find the top of his love or the top of his faithfulness, a God who desires relationship, legally binding relationship with sinners? There is no one like him. So the joy of covenant is that in this relationship, God makes promises that are too good to be true to people who could never deserve them. And so first, rejoice in the formation of the covenant. Second this morning, praise the God of the covenant. Praise the God of the covenant. Uh, verses 5 to 8, let's read it. It says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? So this is just a set of questions, right? This is like three or four questions, right one after the other. And, and you could summarize what these questions are trying to say in one short phrase, no one compares to the Lord. And this is, a, this is a, the, the idea is that God is incomparable. And I think this is really important for us to understand. It's not just that there's no one sort of like God. It's that 
there is nothing and no one that's even close to who God is. Uh, one of the best ways that you and I understand things is by comparison, right? We're always like putting two things beside one another and, and then trying to understand what it is by comparing it. Maybe you're watching a, a sports game and the announcer says something like this, oh, wow, that player really reminds me of so-and-so. Or they might say it the other way around, you know, wow, I've, I've never seen a player who could do that like he does. Uh, or maybe you take a sip of coffee and you think, wow, you know, this tastes a lot like Starbucks. Like, I, I did a pretty good job at home. Uh, or maybe you make a recipe, but you decide to use, like, healthier ingredients. And you think, you know what? This tastes kind of close enough that I think I could just eat this instead, instead of, you know, and feel a lot better about eating it. You know, we're, we're constantly making these comparisons to try to understand things in our, in our life. But what Psalm 89 is trying to tell us is that God has no analogy. There is nothing that corresponds to him. There's nothing that is like him. And the reason why is because he is the creator and we are the creation. Now, you might be thinking, okay, this sounds, that sounds basic. That sounds obvious. That sounds simple. That's, that sounds easy to believe. And yet, so many times, uh, we, 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 we act in life, we live in life the exact opposite. When the Apostle Paul describes our collective failure, when he describes what has gone wrong with humanity, this is how he puts it in Romans chapter 1. He says, claiming to be wise, so hey, look at us, we're so smart, we're awesome, we understand life. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in other words, the reason that life is so backwards for all of us is because we actually think that there are things in the universe that can compete with God, that could compete with Him for our satisfaction, that could compete with Him for our security, that could compete with Him for our reverence and for our worship. So if we began to functionally live like God was incomparable, like there was nothing else in the world like him, then we would immediately become astronomically more wise and more fulfilled in life. Uh, now, the next few verses, verses 9 through 14, is just a flurry of reasons why God is incomparable. So, okay, if nothing can compare to God, if he's in a field all by himself, if there's no analogy for him, why is that? And the psalmist just begins to rehearse a few things. So we'll start in verses 9 and 10. It says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab, which we learned a few weeks ago is just another word for Egypt. So you crushed Egypt like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your might. So uh, the psalmist is looking back on history, and, he, and he's remembering when God's people were slaves in Egypt. God had made all these wonderful promises to them. And it seemed like there was no possible way that those promises were going to come true. And yet God came down and he came through for his people and he met their needs and he saved them and he brought them out of Egypt. And how did he do it? He did it by totally defeating Egypt, by splitting the waters of the Red Sea and by his people walking across on dry land. So just when it seemed that God's promises were failing, God came down, he intervened. And he did the miraculous, and he saved his people. 
And then after thinking about God's, God's faithfulness there in the Exodus event, um, the psalm takes us in, in a different direction in verses 11 and 12. It talks sort of, sort of more generally about who this incomparable God is. It says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them, the north and the south, you have created them, and Tabor and Hermon, those are just two mountains near Jerusalem. They joyously praise your name. So the reason that God has no analogy is because all of life can be categorized in two ways. There's two categories that you can, you can understand all of life in these two ways. One category is creator, and the other category is creation. And there's, there's only two. And the reason there's no analogy is because there's only one creator. He is unique. He is sovereign. There is nothing and no one else who owns all things. There's nothing and no one else who's sovereign over all things. And there's nothing and no one else who can say that all things exist to praise me, except for the one true living God. And then in verses 13 and 14, after establishing this creator-creation distinction, we're led into some of these attributes of God. In verse 13 it says, You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So yes, these individual attributes in and of themselves are, are awesome. They're really cool things. But it's not just that. That's not, that's not just what makes God incomparable. What makes God incomparable is that He is able to hold all of these attributes in perfect Harmony with one another. Um, you, you guys probably know this. Harmony is, is challenging. If you've got five or six people singing, and five out of six of them sound great together, but one of them is off, what do you hear? You hear the one who's off. That it just takes a, a smidge out of, the, out of tune to kind of screech and ruin the whole thing. And what, the, the, what makes God incomparable isn't, isn't just that He's righteous or just or loving. It's that He is all righteousness and all justice and all steadfast love and all faithfulness all at the same time and in perfect harmony. So have you ever wondered why some people emphasize that God hates sinners while other people emphasize that God loves sinners. Or maybe you've, known, you've seen where some people shine a light on God's justice, where other people shine a light on God's mercy. Or maybe you've noticed that some people emphasize the righteousness of God, while other people emphasize the grace of God. And on the one hand, you, you, you can't fault us for doing that, because in one sense, in God's word, he reveals himself to be all of those things, to do all of those things. And so we're sort of left with this difficulty. And most of us, if I'm just being honest, what we do is we just sort of find the one that we like the most and we just sort of cozy up to it. But this tension, especially that we see in the Old Testament, of the fact that God is, he seems to be all of these things. He seems to hate sinners and love sinners. He seems to be just and merciful. He seems to be righteous and gracious. It presents this, this mystery for us that only gets solved when this king, this promised one, arrives and he's offered up for the salvation of sinners. 
See, the only way that we keep God in balance, the only way that we honestly understand how God relates in his dealings with men and women is to go and to meditate at the foot of the cross. It's at the cross that we see the harmony of God's dealings with men. It's at the cross where we keep from leaning to one side or the other. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a 20th century preacher, he said it this way. He said, the cross is the vindication of God. The cross is the vindication of the character of God. The cross not only shows us the love of God more gloriously than anything else, it, it shows us His righteousness, His justice, His holiness, and all the glory of His eternal attributes. They are all to be seen shining together there. And then this is the, this is the sentence I love the most out of this quote. He says, If you do not see them all, then you have not seen the cross. This is the incomparability of God and the incomparability of the gospel. Because at the cross, God pours out his hatred upon sinners and he demonstrates his love for sinners. At the cross, his son Jesus took the wrath of God, which satisfied the justice of God, but he also paid the penalty for our sins which demonstrated the love and the faithfulness of God. And this is how God brings rebellious sinners into a covenant relationship with himself. So why did the, the psalmist take us in this, this direction? Why did he start just praising God and talking about how wonderful and awesome God is and all of his attributes and all of his wonder? Why did he do that? Well, he did it because a promise is only as good as the one who made it. The covenant that we're being invited to trust in this morning is only sure because God is sure. And yes, uh, we should worship, we should praise God because at the cross of Jesus we were forgiven, but we should also worship and praise God because at the cross we see the perfect harmony of all God's attributes. At the cross we learn that we don't have to pick between a high standard of God's righteousness and an infinite ocean of grace and mercy and love. So rejoice in the formation of the covenant. Praise the God of the covenant. And then finally this morning, walk in the blessing of the covenant. Walk in the blessing of the covenant. Um, every so often, when Allie and I are... Um, kind of just settling in for bed, and you know when you're sort of half asleep, half awake, and you're laying there just kind of trying to get cozy, every so often, uh, Allie will just look at me really quick, and she'll say, did you lock the door? And uh, early on in our marriage, uh, I would try to argue with her and tell her, yeah, just don't worry, like, it'll be fine, like, we've never had a problem before, you know. But now I've learned, when she says it, I just let out a big huff, and I just plop out, and I go, and I just, I just go check. You know, it's always locked, but I just go check. The reason, that, the reason that Allie has that feeling is because it's hard to rest when you don't feel like you have safety. It's hard to rest. It's hard to have peace when you don't feel secure. What we see in verse 15 as we enter this last section that we're going to look at today is the word blessed. Blessed. 
And isn't that really why we care about security in the first place? Security is just a means to an end. Security is about giving us peace. It's about giving us life. It's about securing for us joy. And God's covenant, this covenant relationship that he enters into, it secures for us the blessed life. In other words, it, it locks us within the house of his blessings. But listen, I, I want to be clear. Uh, if you were to go ahead, maybe sometime this afternoon, and read the rest of Psalm 89, what you'll see is this promise of blessing isn't just some sort of pie-in-the-sky easy answer for the difficulties of life. Next week, we are going to see what it means that even as God's covenant people, we still have to wrestle through hard questions, and we still have to wrestle through the real legitimate sufferings that we experience. But at the beginning, at the outset, we have to establish, we have to see that God gives us this covenant, He gives us these promises, He enters into this relationship with us because we long for blessing, we long for peace, and the only place that it's found is within the covenant with God. And so let's read verses 15 to 18. It says, Blessed, blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted for you are the glory of their strength by your favor our horn is exalted for our shield belongs to the lord our king to the holy one of israel so there's six blessings that i see in this this little uh, section of verses six blessings that i want to draw out this is what it means to be blessed to be within the safety of God's covenant blessing. So let's look at them one at a time. First, the blessing of covenant family. The blessing of covenant family. When God calls us into covenant relationship with Him, we join all the other people who have been called into covenant relationship with Him. We are legally adopted into a family, and we get to join together with other people who come together and sing and celebrate and worship this God together. We are the people, as, as it says there, who know the festal shout. I mean, isn't it just wonderful this morning to be with God's people, to lift up our voices to praise Him, to see the life that God is bringing into the world, to, to celebrate and to rejoice together. What a blessing to be here with the people of God today. A second blessing is this, the blessing of God's presence. The blessing of God's presence. Uh, whenever the Bible talks about God's face or the light of His face, it's talking about His presence. See, all these other things, all these other blessings that we might get, uh, they're actually not really blessings unless we have God, unless we have Him, because we were made to live in His presence. We were made to thrive under the shining smile of His face. Uh, a third blessing is the blessing of joy, the blessing of joy. Uh, you, you'll notice there that in your Bible, at least in my Bible, it uses the word Exult, E-X-U-L-T. Don't really hear that uh, used every day in, in people's everyday normal vocabulary, but it's an awesome word. It means to rejoice in something, to celebrate in something, to sort of exude with excitement over something. And what we're being told that we exult in, that we have, what we have rejoicing in, is God's name. Now, at one point, and this might even be true for some of you here today, the name of God is, is boring. It means nothing to you. 
Uh, or maybe it's even threatening and frightening. That, that, that the idea of God, the idea of His name scares you. The idea of being in His presence would be threatening to you. But the blessing of the covenant is God's name to us no longer is frightening. It's no longer boring. It's no longer threatening. But instead, it is a joy. It is our rejoicing to be in His presence and to live under His name is the delight of our life because we've been forgiven. We've been brought into His family. And now now His name is no longer terror. His name is our deepest joy. A fourth blessing we see is the blessing of nobility. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that when we live outside of covenant, and therefore we just live our life according to our own standard, then we live a life according to shame. But when we submit to the king of God's kingdom, when we come underneath of the covenant blessing of God, and we begin to walk in his ways, and we begin to desire what he desires, we are actually elevated. The text says there, we are exalted. That means lifted up. We're lifted up in His righteousness. That means when we're, when we're not walking in His righteousness, we're in the mud. We're in the muck. We're in the shame of life. But when we're in His righteousness, walking in His ways, we are lifted up. We're exalted. Both the internal qualities, peace, joy, love, compassion, are more noble, more righteous. But even our external dealings with others become, become elevated, become more noble, how we talk to people, how we use our bodies, our, our sex lives, our integrity in our business dealings with others, all of it, it's, it's lifted. It's like a buoy. God's righteousness is like this buoy lifting us up and redignifying us. A fifth, a fifth blessing of the covenant is the blessing of strength. In the covenant, we're no longer bound to the resources of this world. We are no longer stuck in a box Dealing with our own strength and our own wisdom and our own power. We have resource which comes from heaven itself. I love how back up in verse 4, when God made the promises to David, he said, I will establish. In other words, the strength of the covenant is not only that God makes us promises, but it's that he fulfills those promises in the power of his strength and with his might and with his power. And then a final blessing that I see here is the blessing of security. The blessing of security. That last verse, verse 18, it communicates this when it says, For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. This is covenant security. Maybe you're wondering, okay, but how does this work? Life is still hard. I still suffer. Well, Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way. He said, If in covenant with God, all things shall cooperate for your good, not only golden paths, but his bloody paths are for good. Every wind of providence shall blow them nearer heaven, Affliction shall humble and purify out of the bitterest drug God distills your salvation. Afflictions add to the saint's glory. He says the more the diamond is cut, the more it sparkles. 
the heavier the saint's cross is, the heavier shall be their crown. See, we can't avoid trouble in this life, right? With all the the insurance in the world, with all the military might, with all the security systems on our home and on our bank account, all that. I mean, you cannot avoid the threats that this life has. And so what, what we need is security, a power, a strength that can not only keep us safe, but that can bend every threat to our advantage. This is the blessing of the covenant, that God is our shield. And if God is our shield, then he will only allow that to pass him, which would be for our good. And anything that he does allow to pass him, he has the power and the wisdom and the love and the faithfulness to bend it to our advantage. So maybe you've realized today as we've been talking that that you don't know the blessing of the covenant, that you don't have this covenant relationship with God. Well, how do we enter into it? How do we come into covenant relationship with God? What we learn is that the way God has designed for us to come into covenant relationship with Him is that David's great-great-great-great-grandson Jesus became the king of God's kingdom. And the way to enter the covenant is to enter the kingdom. And the way to enter the kingdom is to submit to the king, to submit to King Jesus. See, even David himself entered in to God's covenant by submitting to King Jesus. You say, wait a second. That's his great-great-great-grandson. How did he do that? Well, this is what Jesus said in Mark 12. We we worked through this passage uh, this year in Mark when we worked through Mark. Mark 12, 37. This is what Jesus said. Jesus was trying to trip up. Uh, some of the people who didn't understand God's promises, God's covenant. He said, David himself calls him, talking about the Messiah, Lord. So how is he his son? The true king of God's kingdom is both David's son, yes, because he came from his line, but he's also David's Lord. Because everyone in all of history who has entered into a saving covenant relationship with God has done so by submitting to that king by submitting to Jesus, the Messiah. None of us deserves this, but every single person here today is welcome. God is inviting you into covenant relationship with himself. So in this crazy world, what are you trusting in? What holds your hope for a bright future? Um, In his book, God's Grace and Your Suffering, David Powlison gives a, a helpful exercise for embracing the promises of God, and I thought it would be a helpful way for us to try to make this morning practical for you. Um, We're going to have, I think, have this up on the screen. If not, at least it's uh, in your bulletin there. And this is how it goes. This is how the exercise goes. It says, because it is true that God is faithful, I am not afraid of blank. I will not be dismayed by blank because God's covenant cannot fail. So whatever is defeating you, that's what goes in the blank. Whatever dark cloud seems to be hanging over your head, that's what goes in the blank. Whatever brings the most anxiety into your life, that is what goes in the blank. And God is faithful. And His covenant, it cannot fail. So let's pray together and then we're going to worship. Lord, we exalt you today. You are 
the one in whose love we cannot find the top of, whose faithfulness we cannot find the top of, I pray that you would move our hearts to trust you more, to enjoy your faithfulness, to cling to the covenant promises, to cling to the relationship that we have with you, both through David's son, but also through David's Lord. We submit this morning to the King of the kingdom, and we worship you forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey guys, we're going to take two minutes and invite you to, to, to sit where you are and pray, maybe even fill out a prayer request through your app. But I want, what I also want to do is for you to, um, that's exciting. What I also want to invite you to do is in, that, in, this, in this little time right here, maybe, maybe it takes you a second to, to think and process. I know I'm that, that way. And so if you didn't have something that immediately came in those blanks to fill in in that formula um, that I just talked about, take a minute and really search your heart and, and ask the Lord, what is causing me fear and how can I cling to your faithfulness? What is defeating me and how can I rest in your covenant promise? So let's just take a few minutes and do that together.